Well, good morning, church. If you have your Bibles this morning, if you'll open up to the book of Galatians, chapter 2. That's where we'll be in the Word this morning, Galatians, chapter 2, as we continue in this sermon series we began just a few weeks ago. We're calling this No Other Gospel, based upon Paul's words there in chapter 1, that there is no other gospel that we need. There is, uh, is not options out there. We are saved by the grace of God in Jesus Christ and through Him alone, through faith in Him alone are we saved. And so we're going to get right into chapter 2 this morning as we continue this series. If you're able to stand in honor of the Word this morning, if you do so at this time as we share God's Word together. Galatians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. The Apostle Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he says, And then, after fourteen years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation, and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain." But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seemed to be influential... What they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles, And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. In verse 10, only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated this morning. Holy Father, as we open your word together this morning, as we explore Galatians 2 this morning, Father, may we be reminded today that there is no other gospel that saves. May we be reminded today that it is by your grace alone, through faith in Jesus Christ alone, that we are saved from sin and death. May we be reminded this morning of a holy God who came pursuing sinners like us in the person of Jesus Christ who died at the cross that we might be rescued and rose from the dead that we might have life eternal in Him. May these truths guide us today and may they spur us on in the gospel ministry that you have given to us as your church. 
We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As we get into chapter 2 this morning, I want to talk to you today about what the gospel must be. There are some imperatives that are laid out in these verses this morning that I, I don't want you to miss. There's a, a call to the church here that is so strong and, and so powerful, a reminder of what we're to be about, but also what we are to do with it. And so three thoughts this morning coming right out of these verses of what the gospel must be. First of all, the gospel must be proclaimed. At the very heart, the gospel is a message that was meant to be proclaimed. We are uh, introduced to it through these men known as the apostles. That's what the apostle Paul refers to himself as in the, in the very first chapter. Those who are sent out with a commission. They are sent out like ambassadors with a message. They are sent out to proclaim the goodness of our God who has seen fit to rescue sinners like us through his grace and through his grace alone it is the gift of god this salvation that we treasure we find right here in verse one that the apostle paul was not alone in his ministry that he was one though he often i don't know how you think about the apostle paul if you think about him at all but he could easily be perceived as some wild lone ranger out here just uh, taking the gospel to places that had not been named and, and kind of being all on his own. And yet every time you find him in these letters to the churches that he was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write, every time you find him, he is partnering with others in the gospel ministry. And one of those faithful men was this one known as Barnabas. He was one of Paul's faithful ministry partners. His name, Barnabas, means son of encouragement. I mean, how many of us need in our lives a son of encouragement, someone who has that gift of encouragement to be able to spur us on in the work? It was Barnabas who came alongside Paul early on. You'll remember, as it says in the last verse of chapter 1, that Paul, who had once been a persecutor of Christians, became a preacher of the gospel and it was Barnabas who came alongside and welcomed him into the church while the others were standing back going, well, we don't really know about this guy. I mean, he's been persecuting us. He's been putting us in prison. He's been, he was standing there on the day when the first Christian martyr was stoned to death for his faith in the gospel. And Paul was holding the coats of the men who were throwing the rocks. And so it was a shocking thing that the persecutor became a preacher, but it was Barnabas who came alongside him as the son of encouragement, as his encourager, and said, we can welcome him in because we see the grace of God in him. We see the grace of God to transform someone from darkness to light, from a persecutor to a preacher. Barnabas, Paul's faithful ministry partner, his partner in that first missionary journey where the churches at Galatia were planted as they went from Lystra to Derby and to Antioch. They went to those places and, and brought the gospel to the, for the first time to those Gentile cities where it had not been named, where it had not yet been proclaimed. And Barnabas, Barnabas was right there all the way. So Christians in this place, I would ask you, who's your Barnabas? Who is that faithful partner in the gospel ministry with you? I've said this to us before and I'll say it again today. We were never meant to be lone rangers in the kingdom of God. 
You were not rescued. Yes, we were rescued one by one, but we were rescued to be paired up with others in this ministry that he's given us. We were sent out, even in in the early days when Jesus sent out those disciples, you'll remember that he sent them out two by two because every Paul needs a Barnabas. And that's what we see here, Barnabas, Paul's faithful partner in this gospel ministry. But then there in verse 2, something interesting is said that Paul and Barnabas were going up to Jerusalem, taking along this one known as Titus. We'll come back to him in just a moment. But he says there, I went up to Jerusalem because of a revelation. And we're going to come back to that thought in just a minute as well. Went up because of a revelation. And I set before them, before the apostles at Jerusalem, and he later identifies as Peter and James and John, I set before them the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order, here was his purpose, in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. So what's the picture here? Paul goes up to Jerusalem with a mission that we'll talk about in just a moment. When he gets there, he has the opportunity to get together with Peter and James and John and some of the influential leaders there at the church in Jerusalem, and they have a little powwow about the gospel because they had been having issues with the fact that now you've got all these crazy Gentiles in the church. I mean, it was one thing when the gospel went out among the Jews. Jesus was a Jewish man. and The gospel began there first to the Jews and then later to the Gentiles. But it was one thing when the gospel went out to the Jews and everything seemed all right, even though there were, there were struggles. But now we've got all these crazy Gentiles who don't follow our customs. They don't speak our language. They don't even practice circumcision. What in the world are we supposed to do with all these crazy Gentiles. It was a major problem in the church. And so Paul comes and sets before them the gospel that he's been preaching from city to city. The gospel on which he has founded church after church. And when he says here, I wanted to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. What I want you to understand this morning is that Paul was not questioning his faith as much as he was questioning his continued fruitfulness. Would the gospel continue to bear fruit in his day or would it be stifled by the false teachers who seemed to follow him from town to town? And they even, as we'll see, followed him to Jerusalem. They stalked Paul. These ones that we talked about last week were known as the Judaizers. They came teaching a, a gospel of Jesus plus Judaism. They were saying, well, yeah, we know what Paul told you. We know that Paul came talking to you about how salvation is by grace, grace through, through faith in Jesus. And that's all good. That's the starting point. But you've also got to enter in through the door of Judaism. You've also got to accept the Old Testament law. You've also got to practice circumcision. You've also got to, to enter into the Jewish customs and religious rituals in order for salvation to truly be yours. It was a Jesus plus Judaism gospel. And so when Paul sits before the apostles at Jerusalem, his, his gospel of salvation by grace alone. No additions. Salvation by faith alone. No works necessary. 
salvation through Christ alone. It's not your performance. It's not what you can do to earn the favor of God. The favor of God has been extended to you freely through what Jesus did at the cross. When Paul lays that out before the apostles, the question he's asking is not, is this the true gospel? He's asking, is the church going to uphold the true gospel in my day? In church, we still need to be asking that question. In a day when false gospels abound, in a day when the tendency would be to take the pure gospel and blend it together with the American dream where we've produced this prosperity gospel that says that it's God's will and design for every one of us to be healthy, wealthy, and prosperous in this life. And if you're not healthy, wealthy, and prosperous, then you must be lacking in faith. It's a false gospel that has taken the American dream and blended it together with the message of Christ and tried to make something that's more palatable to the culture in which we reside. It's exactly what the Judaizers were doing. They were saying this radical grace is going to tick some people off. People aren't going to like this. The Jewish people are not going to like the fact because for thousands of years now, all the way back to Abraham, they have been practicing this rite of circumcision, which was a way of saying, we're the special covenant people of God. And now you're saying that that doesn't matter anymore? That's really going to tick some people off. Because at the end of the day, there's always in each one of us a little bit of legalism. We want to know what's it going to take to earn God's favor in my life. Show me the list. Tell me what I got to do. And then the gospel comes along and says, there's nothing that you could do. It's already been done on your behalf. Jesus Christ paid it all. All to him we owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. And he washed it white as snow. And the world says, but what's my part? And when you tell them it's already been done, it's all of grace. People don't care much for that. So Paul was questioning what we too need to be questioning, church. Will we continue to be faithful to this gospel? Or will we look for something a little more palatable to the culture in which we reside? And so he sets before them a test case there in verse 3. This, this Greek known as Titus, he's the one to whom Paul wrote the letter of Titus later in the New Testament. You find that letter Titus is then pastoring the church at Crete. And and we see here now Titus becomes a test case for the gospel of grace. And here's the test. Not to be too graphic this morning, but the test is this. If they force Titus to get circumcised, then the gospel of grace goes out the door. If they force Titus, who's a Greek, to become like a Jew, to accept the Jewish customs, to dress like a Jew, to talk like a Jew, to eat like a Jew, if they force Titus into Jewishness, then the gospel of grace is out the door. And what you have in that moment, Paul is saying, what you have in that moment is a division in the church that would have lasted down to this day. If the apostles at Jerusalem say, yeah, we've got to circumcise Titus, then they go one direction in history and Paul's gospel goes in a different direction. Because we know he would not have sold out the truth of the gospel just for peace with those brothers in Jerusalem. And so Titus becomes this test case. In Titus, Tim Keller says, Paul was confronting the other apostles with a concrete test case. The acceptance of Titus was a radical public statement of the implications of the gospel. 
It may seem like a small thing. Well, does Titus have to be circumcised or not? It was enormous. We don't grasp the gravity of what's taking place here. It was an enormous thing that was taking place because if Titus is forced to be circumcised, then the gospel goes out the door. And the reality was the church of the first century didn't know what to do with a Titus. They didn't know what to do with these crazy Gentiles that kept coming into the church, that kept flocking to the gospel. They didn't know what to do with these guys. And church, we have the same issues today. There's just folks that we don't know what to do with. We don't know what to do with those who wrestle with same-sex attraction and yet come looking for the gospel that sets them free. Let's just be honest, church. We don't know what to do with that. We don't know what to do with those who have a more liberal politics than we're accustomed to, that maybe voted for a different party than we would vote for. We don't know what to do with those folks when they come asking questions about the gospel because we somehow see them as removed from it. For some churches, we don't know what to do with folks that are in a different socioeconomic class than us. Maybe they're a little too rich or a little too poor, but they're not like us, so we don't know what to do with them. For some, it's educational status. We don't know what to do with the folks with doctor's degrees, and we don't know what to do with the ones that didn't complete high school. We don't know what to do with them. And yes, it's still very evident in our culture today that we don't really know what to do with folks that have a different skin tone than the majority of the folks in our congregation. Sadly, this divide that is happening in the first century is still going on today. There are folks that we don't know what to do with, and the Bible is calling us out and saying, they are your brothers and sisters in Christ. Love them with the grace and mercy of God. Welcome them in and learn from one another. That's what's happening here in Galatians 2, is they're learning from one another. They are growing together. It's not as if Paul comes with all the knowledge and wisdom and dumps it on the apostles at Jerusalem and says, boom, there it is. No, there's learning on both sides that takes place. There's a recognition that takes place that's so necessary. Before we go on, though, I want to show you something. Part of the, the mystery of Galatians 2 is is the context. In understanding the Bible, I've I've told you before uh, an old phrase I learned from a seminary professor, context is king. You can make the Bible say all kinds of things if you rip it out of its context. And and part of the challenge of Galatians 2 is is understanding the context in which this visit to Jerusalem takes place. If If you go over to the book of Acts, the book of Acts lays out the history of the early church. After Jesus' resurrection, uh, all the way up to uh, the, the latter part of the first century, we find it's laying out this history here of the early church. And during that history, the Apostle Paul makes four separate visits to Jerusalem. He didn't spend a lot of time there, but he makes four separate visits to Jerusalem. And so the question becomes, when he says here in Galatians 2.1 that they went up to Jerusalem, which visit was it? Now you can pretty easily write off the first visit to Jerusalem and the fourth visit. I won't even address those right now. But the question becomes, was it the visit they made in Acts chapter 11 or the visit they made in Acts chapter 15? And some of you are glazing over right now and you're going, I don't care. Well, I hope you will care by the time we finish today because the context makes this passage all the more beautiful. 
Some would say, well, it's got to be Acts chapter 15 because that's where the Jerusalem council takes place where they're trying to decide what do we do with all these crazy Gentiles? That's the whole question in Acts chapter 15. Are we going to force them into Jewish culture and a Jesus plus Judaism gospel or are we going to maintain that the gospel is by grace through faith in Christ alone? That was the question in Acts chapter 15. So surely, since that seems to be the question in in Galatians chapter 2, surely that's the context. But, But I don't think that it is. I think the context of Galatians chapter 2 is what you find in the end of Acts chapter 11. And I hope that this will be helpful to you. Acts chapter 11, beginning of verse 27, says, Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them, named Agabus, stood up and he foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine all over the world. This took place in the days of... Of Claudius. And so the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea, and they did this, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. I noticed a couple of things. First of all, why in Galatians 2 does Paul say he went to Jerusalem in the first place? Because of a revelation. It's the same word he uses as to how he received the gospel in the first place. He wasn't taught by men. As Matt put before us last week, it was not man's gospel. It was given through a revelation of God. He received it directly from the Lord Jesus Christ himself through a divine revelation. It's the same word being used here. And it would be easy for us to look at that and assume that Paul was the receiver of the revelation. But I think it was Agabus here in in Acts chapter 11. And so here's the context. Lest we think that Paul gathers up Barnabas and Titus to take them up to Jerusalem to prove a point. Don't miss the fact that the very reason that they were going to Jerusalem in the first place was because God gave Agabus a revelation of the famine that was coming. And there was going to be deep need among the brothers in Jerusalem. And so the reason that Paul was going to Jerusalem was to meet the practical need of the famine that was coming, to take an offering that would provide for the brothers there in Jerusalem. And imagine how God used that offering to prepare the way for his meeting with Peter, James, and John. Imagine how God used that and set that up, bringing together the theological divide that could have been there and the practical need that most certainly was coming. It's a beautiful thing. We'll talk more about it before we finish. But this gospel, it must be proclaimed. Secondly, this morning, beginning in verse 4, this gospel must be preserved. And so these Judaizers there in verse 4, these ones he calls false brothers who were secretly brought in, they slipped in to spy out our freedom. Notice the language he's using here. They slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ so that they might bring us into slavery. Paul's stalkers, these Judaizers show up there in Jerusalem. These Judaizers, they were charlatans, they were spies, and ultimately he describes them here as slave traders. They were looking to drag us back into slavery. In Galatians chapter 5, we're going to see Paul saying it was for freedom that Christ has set us free. Don't submit once again to a yoke of slavery. You've been set free 
free from slavery to the law. You've been set free from slavery to sin. You've been set free in Christ. Why would you run back to a works-based religion? Why would you run to a Jesus plus Judaism gospel when the grace of God is sufficient? Why? So these Judaizers came in. These false teachers came in as spies to drag the brothers and sisters back into a slavery into the law. And we still have these charlatans among us today, whether it's the prosperity gospel preacher, whether it's those who would seek to mix their Christianity with their conservative politics, whether it's the good old boy gospel that seems so palatable in the culture in which we reside. The gospel that says, well, yeah, Jesus is nice, but if you're just good enough, if you're nice to people, if everyone thinks of you as a quote-unquote good person, then surely that will be enough when you stand before God. But it was never our goodness, never our righteousness that would merit anything before God. The scriptures say that our righteousness was like filthy rags before a holy God. It was never going to be about our measuring up. It was always going to be about the fact that He, Jesus Christ, measured up on our behalf. And so Paul says here that we would not budge, we would not, we would not shrink back even for a moment. Verse 5, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment. What he's reminding us of here is that this gospel must be preserved at all costs. We've got to stand for grace, church. We have got to stand in the place where grace is sufficient, not just to sing grace is enough, but to keep proclaiming it day in and day out in the midst of a culture that would seek to drive us back into a works-based religion because they already accuse us of it. We must continue to point to grace and to guard grace. So how do we do that? I got to thinking about something that, that I don't ever remember seeing as a child. You know, anymore you go to the grocery store and it seems like every box, every bag has this label that says no preservatives. You guys have seen this, right? No additives, no preservatives. And now the new word that's huge, if you want to pay $6 for an apple, it's going to have the word organic on it, Okay. And, and you're going to have your organic milk and you're going to whatever, all your organic eggs. And, and they're going to double the price. And it's, my gut says it's probably the same eggs in a different box. But whatever, whatever's really going on there. Uh, and I'm not getting on to those of you that eat organic. In fact, I'm going to commend you here in just a moment. But when I was growing up, I, I'm sure I ate a whole lot of preservatives. And I began to wonder this week as I was thinking about this passage. I began to do a little bit of research about preservatives and what, really what's the big deal, Right. I mean, no preservatives. I mean, we grew up and we had, most of us in this room, we've eaten our fair share of preservatives, I guarantee you. Chemicals that are meant to preserve our food. And yet, the research shows that while they were sought to preserve our food, they destroy our bodies. Preservatives have been linked with cancers of various kinds. Preservatives have been linked with heart disease. Preservatives have even been linked with the hyperactivity among children. On and on the health issues that are related to these things called preservatives that when we were growing up, we didn't even know there was, there was such a problem. But now it's widespread. 
that which was used in an effort to preserve our food caused death in our bodies. You see, preserving the gospel means that we will preserve it by preventing any preservatives. It sounds counterintuitive in a way. I really think that these Judaizers, and even today so many among the prosperity gospel movement and any of the other movements that we've talked about, and that any of the false gospels of our day, I really think that there's a, there's a desire there. They're trying to preserve something. The Judaizers were looking at the scene and going, man, if we continue preaching this gospel of pure grace, that's going to make it really difficult for the church to thrive. So we need to throw in the preservatives of a, of a Jesus plus Judaism gospel. Just add a little work. It's not going to hurt, right? But Paul recognized rightly it was cancer to the body. It struck at the very heart of the body. It would bring a weakness and a death in the body if it was allowed to continue. And so he puts before the apostles at Jerusalem a gospel that had written all across it, no preservatives, no additives. A couple hundred years ago, there was a pastor named J.C. Ryle, a powerful proponent of the gospel in his day. And he said, since Satan cannot destroy the gospel, it's not within his power to do that. He has too often neutralized its usefulness by addition, subtraction, or substitution. He was writing that in the early 1800s, folks. I think the Apostle Paul would have said the exact same thing in the first century. And those who are faithful to the gospel today must see that it will never be Satan's plan to do away with the gospel altogether just to add in a few additives and a few preservatives along the way to neutralize its effectiveness to save. And so what must we do? We must allow no additives to the gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. We must not allow this gospel to be added unto or to be taken away from or to be substituted with something other than what it is. But notice the reason. Paul's adamant. So then we did not yield in submission. It's a, it's a military term then. We, we, we would not yield. We would not let the line go. We were holding out. These were freedom fighters for the gospel. He said we would not yield. And you wonder, is he making a big deal out of nothing? No, he said we would not yield. Why? We would not yield to them even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Now, I know he was writing this to the Galatian churches 2,000 years ago, but those words leapt off the page for me this week. That the truth of the gospel might be preserved for us. Because Peter, James, and John came together with Paul, Barnabas, and Titus and recognized that they were both preaching the same message and that the Judaizers were preaching something other than the gospel, because they recognized that in the first century, we now stand upon the shoulders of giants. 
Because Martin Luther recognized during the Protestant Reformation that the church of his day had departed from the gospel of grace and had added a works-based system in their Catholicism because they recognized that and he sought to lead in a reformation of the church to return to this gospel. We stand upon the shoulders of giants. And who will be the giants in our day? Who will be those who will stand up for this gospel? who will guard it with their lives and even give their lives for that which is their very life. Who will it be for us? Who in this church? Who in this church will stand and say, this is the only gospel that saves? Recognizing the additives and the preservatives that our culture is seeking to infect in, some with the best of motives, and it is a pathway that leads to destruction. Who will listen to Paul's words to the young pastor Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 1 when he said, Follow the pattern of the sound words that you've heard from me. That word sound means healthy, it's where we get our English word hygiene. Follow the pattern of the healthy, sound, solid words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Jesus Christ. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. That word entrusted is used twice here in Galatians chapter 2. The gospel was entrusted to Paul. The gospel was entrusted to Peter. It's a trust that has been given to us and we guard it. We guard it by proclaiming it. We guard it by preserving it. We see it as the treasure that it is. Finally, this morning, we see in the last few verses that this gospel must be practical. For those who feel like we're going to walk away today just having had a theological argument and wondering what am I going to do with this, it becomes immensely practical here in the last few verses. Paul says they... When we met together, they added nothing to me. They added nothing to the gospel. They recognized that we were saying the same thing, that we were preaching the same word. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been, verse 7, entrusted with the gospel to this uncircumcised, just as, notice those words, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, then they extended the right hand of fellowship to me. There was unity in that moment. And so a couple of words here. First of all, We must unite with those who share the same gospel, even though there are diverse gifts given for different groups. Here's what they recognize. Paul had been gifted to take the gospel to the Gentiles primarily. That didn't mean that he ignored the Jews. That didn't mean that he went into the cities and said, well, I'm just here for the Gentiles. You Jews are on your own. No, where did he always begin? In every city that had a synagogue, Paul always began in the Jewish synagogue. Because he recognized that the gospel was given first for the Jews and then for the Gentiles. But when he got kicked out of the synagogue, he began preaching on the street corners and the Gentiles began flocking to the gospel. That's where Paul's ministry really shone. But what about Peter? Did Peter look upon the Gentiles and say, my gospel is not for you? No, go to Acts chapter 10 and you see Peter being led by the Spirit to a man named Cornelius. He was a Greek as well. He's being led there to deliver the gospel. He was the first one. Even before Paul, he was the first one that God used to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And yet primarily, Peter's ministry was among the Jews. But here's what happened when Peter and Paul came together. 
When Peter and Paul came together, there was an understanding that while we have been commissioned by God to reach two very different groups, we're preaching the same word. We're telling them both, Jews and Gentiles alike, that the one way of salvation is the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. God's gift of salvation, it's not by word. There's not one way of salvation for Jews and one way of salvation for Gentiles. That's what was at stake here in Galatians chapter 2. And by the way, it's still at stake today, not necessarily the Jew-Gentile divide, but all the other divides that we see so prevalent in our culture, the divides of race and socioeconomic class and educational divides and political divides, all the divides that we see, we're going to find Paul here in Galatians saying, the gospel tears down every dividing wall. All the things that would divide us. All the things that would divide us even within the church as we find ourselves divided over a preference in musical style. Who cares about that in light of the gospel? As we find ourselves divided over what translation of the Bible that we read. Who cares about that in light of the gospel? As we find ourselves divided over how we should respond to the political issues of our day and whether we should be out on the corners with picket signs or hiding out in our homes, we find ourselves divided and yet the gospel would say, this is so much greater. What God has given us in this message of salvation is so much greater than all the things that would divide us. And so we can find ourselves united with those who share the same gospel, even as we recognize that there are different gifts different, given for different groups. Christian, in this room, do you understand this morning that you share more in common with that brother or sister in Saudi Arabia today than you do with your next-door neighbor that doesn't know Jesus Christ as Savior? Do we recognize this morning that we have more in common because of the gospel with brothers and sisters in the Congo this morning who will likely never worship in an air-conditioned building and have images on a screen and have an electric piano or any piano at all. But we have more in common with those brothers and sisters than we do with our coworker in the next cubicle who, who worships the same sports team. And yes, I use, the same, I use the word worship there. Do we recognize that? Because these brothers recognized it. When Peter and Paul came together with their companions, they recognized it's the same gospel and that trumps everything else. All of our differences are minimized because... Of this. Just two more things and we'll finish this morning. First of all, there are a reminder to us here that we must contextualize the gospel without contorting in it. And here's what I mean by that. They recognized that they were sharing the same gospel, and yet the way that they presented it to the groups that they were called to minister to differed slightly. You see this in Acts chapter 17 as Paul goes to the city of Athens. A very, if there's a Greek city, it's Athens. I mean, it's the capital of Greece, okay? If there's, a, if there's a place where the Greek mindset was flourishing, it was in the city of Athens. And when Paul goes into the city of Athens to present the gospel, he doesn't even begin with Jesus. He has to begin with who is God. 
Because for the Greeks, they had every God known to man. There was even an altar there to an unknown God, and that's the one that Paul uses as a a stepping stone for the gospel, saying, hey, you know your altar to the unknown God where you're just trying to cover your bases because you might have forgotten one? I want to tell you about that unknown God. I want to tell you about the God that you don't yet know. He created heaven and earth, and he goes all the way back to Genesis and begins to share with them the gospel through the pages of Scripture as he wakes his way to Christ. But he doesn't do that everywhere. He contextualizes. He, 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 adapts, he adapts his way of presenting the gospel, but he never adapts the gospel. Do you see the difference? It's always the same message, though he might use slightly different methods. And that's what they're recognizing here, that the same gospel was given to Peter for the Jews is the same gospel that was given to Paul for the Gentiles. That was the unity that they shared, even though there would be a diversity in the way that they proclaimed the message. It would be the same message given through different medium. It would be the same message given through different methods. It would be the same message, and that was the source of their unity And the same is true today. We've got to learn how to contextualize the gospel without contorting it. So church, what do we do? What do we do with brothers and sisters in our midst who have trusted Jesus Christ by faith? But the besetting sin of their lives is that they wrestle and struggle day in and day out with same-sex attraction. What do we do with that? I'm not saying they're living in an openly homosexual lifestyle. That's a different thing altogether. I'm saying the wrestling, the temptation of their lives is in that vein of same-sex attraction. And they know that's not popular in the church. I don't know how to talk about that. No one's going to understand if I bring this out. I'm going to get this sign when I go in that direction. Church, we've got to learn how to do this. We have got to learn how to bring the gospel to light to those that feel like they're somehow inferior because their besetting sin is on the top of the list of that which is unpopular in the church today. That doesn't mean twisting the gospel and contorting it to say that the things that the Bible says are wrong or okay. It means being honest about sin. But it means being even more honest about the grace of God and salvation that Christ provides to all who believe in Him. I love what Russell Moore said, to rail against the culture, as we so often do, is to say to God that we are entitled to a better mission field than the one He has given us. At the same time, if we simply dissolve into the culture around us or refuse to leave untroubled the questions the culture deems too sensitive to ask, We are not on mission at all. And so here's where the church struggles. Right here in 21st century America. Do we run and hide in our homes and keep the gospel to ourselves? Or do we twist the gospel to make it more palatable to our culture? Those are the two temptations. Do we run and hide into our holy little hovels Or do we allow the additives to the gospel that our culture would push upon us? And it's a straight and narrow way that lies between the two. And it will take great faith in the power of the Holy Spirit to walk in it. 
But I'm praying that God is going to raise up men and women right here in our midst to say, just like Paul was saying, just like Peter was saying, this is worth our dying breath. And they meant it to the point that it cost them their dying breath. This is worth giving my life for, not just my Sundays for, not just my Wednesday nights for. This is worth giving every waking moment of my life and even my dreams as well, that all of it would be devoted to the God who devoted himself to me to rest rescue me from sin and death. This is worth everything. This is not just playing church anymore. When will we be done with that? When will we be done with this kind of cultural Christianity that has no impact on the world around us? I pray it'll be soon. And then we come to verse 10. And just like in chapter 1 verse 10. Galatians 2 verse 10 just seems out of place. I mean, we're going along here and we're talking about upholding the truth of the gospel and the church coming together in unity, Jews and Gentiles alike. I mean, that's been the theme as we've been walking through all of this, that there is no other gospel. And then we come to verse 10 and Paul writes, only they, Peter, James, and John, asked us, Paul, Titus, and Barnabas, to remember the poor. And as I was reading this this week, early this week, I thought, where does that come from? Remember the poor. What does that have to do with what he's been talking about all along? And see, this is why context is so important and so beautiful. Because remember the context of Acts chapter 11. Assuming that that's the context of Galatians 2, why had they gone to Jerusalem in the first place? They had gone there to take an offering for those who were in the midst of a famine. Now we think famine means we don't have anything we want to eat in our cupboards and we have to go to Walmart. No, this is an actual lack of food. These are those who are starving to death literally. And the church at Antioch looked to their brothers in Jerusalem and said, we can do something about that. In light of the gospel, we can do something about that. God has given us resources that we can now share with brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. And so the gospel leads us to a place of action in relation to the poor that I think is so important for us to understand. This is not just a theological discussion that we're having here this morning. This is immensely practical. Remember the poor. The very thing, Paul says, that I was eager to do. Are we remembering the poor as not as a part of the gospel, but as an outworking of it? Not saying our service to the poor somehow adds to what Christ did at the cross for us. No, we're saying because of what Christ did at the cross for us, we're going to remember the poor. The gospel reminds us to identify with the poor, not to pity them. You see, we live in a culture that's good at pitying the poor. Well, if only they had more resources, if only they had better education, if only they had the things that we have, then we could bring them up to our level. Do you hear how conceited that sounds? And yet that is the message that we hear proclaimed all the time in our culture. And I'm not saying that we don't need better education and better economic systems that will help to elevate people beyond that low status. I'm not saying that that's not important, but I'm saying it's not the answer. 
The answer is found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel that says we don't come alongside the poor to pity them. We come alongside the poor to identify with them. As it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. See, here's what I think Paul and Barnabas and Titus and the church at Antioch saw when they looked at Jerusalem. They didn't look and say, oh, poor Jerusalemites. Poor little Jews over there in Judea. Isn't it sad that they don't have the blessings that we have here in Antioch? No, they looked and said, you know those brothers of ours over there that are going through a famine right now? Do you remember when we had a famine of the Word of God right here in Antioch? Do you remember when Paul and Barnabas came to us with the gospel and fed the hunger of our souls? The least we can do is send aid for our brothers in Jerusalem. We looked at Texas this morning. I love how God has given us this opportunity right in the midst of this passage of Scripture. We looked at Texas this morning. It would be very easy for us to watch as the newsreels flow of of streets flooded and people floating down in John boats and and people being rescued from housetops. It would be very easy for us to look at the piles of of possessions that have been destroyed by floodwaters and to say, oh, isn't it sad what's happening in Texas? But how different would it be if we were to look at those images and be reminded of the day when there was not a flood of waters, but there was a flood of wickedness in our lives. When we were drowning under the weight of our sin, and it was no man or woman that came along in a john boat, it was God in the flesh who came to dwell among us and took the price of our salvation upon Himself at the cross and rescued us. Would it be a reminder to us that we would look at this living picture of man's need for the gospel and say, that was me. I was the one who was famished and dying. I was the one who was flooded out in my own wickedness. And it was Christ who came as my rescuer. How could I not then seek to bring aid and to send relief to those in Texas? I want to say one thing and then give you a challenge. Please do not in any way, I hope you will not hear this pastor saying, we send aid to Texas out of guilt. Because we don't. If that's your reason, I feel guilty because I have and they don't, you've missed it. Nor do we send aid to Texas as some way to gain the favor of God, another ounce of God's favor for ourselves. God will be happy with me if I send relief to those in Texas. You're missing it. The reason that we would seek to minister to those in the state of Texas is because we are them. It's because we were rescued. It's because Christ came along in our moment of greatest need and did for us what we could never have done for ourselves.
It's because He knew what we needed above all. It's because for our sakes He took on our poverty so that He might bring the riches of His glory to bear in our lives. And then we have opportunity to respond as a result of the gospel.